0: This talk was recorded at Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society in Los Angeles and is freely offered for your enjoyment. For more information, please visit againstthestream.org.
1: It's a fascinating book, and it's called, Waking from Sleep, Why Awakening Experiences Occur and How to Make Them Permanent, and this is an English fellow. Who wrote this book? And um, after watching Inception for the fourth time, the, CD, <coughs> the DVD came out, so I had a chance to look at that. Um, I'll give you an insight that was given to me by a high school student at a talk I was giving. That uh, Leonardo's uh, uh, character does not have his own totem. The totem. He uses in the movie his little top-looking thing. It looks almost like a dreidel, sort of. Is his wife's that was locked in that little safe when they? And so he may never wake up because he's using the wrong totem. But waking up for me has always been a, a fascinating concept because I didn't realize I was asleep for a long time, and and uh, people kept telling me that, but I didn't understand what they had to say, and then as I started to meditate and started to study the teachings of the Buddha I started to realize, in fact, I was suffering from uh, wakeful sleep, walking sleep having some good dreams in this wakeful sleep and having good dreams in my nighttime sleep as well, but how would it be to wake up actually? and, and, and can we do it in a way that uh, that doesn't require too much from us? and, and this book goes into the variety of ways we we can wake up with, a, with external or internal approaches. And so one of the songs, on my ukulele, is about waking up. And it's a Christian song that I made Buddhist, and it's all about waking up. So I'd like to play it for you, just to make this a joyful hour of song and talk
0: and insight. Spin well, sweet on the wheel Coming for to wake me up, spin well, sweet Dharma wheel. Coming for to wake me up. Well, I sat down and meditate, what did I see? Coming for to wake me up, band of Buddhas coming after me. Coming for to wake me up, spin well, sweet Dharma wheel. Coming for to wake me up. Well, sweet corner wheel, come and for the wake me up. Well, if you wake up before I do, come for to wake me up. Tell my friends that I'm awake too. Come and for the wake me up. Spin well, sweet on the wheel, come and for to wake me up. Spin well. Me up, for the way, me up. Yay.
1: <laughs> and having said that, I've been working on some other songs as well, and I have my first Christian gospel country song that I've been working on. People are a little upset about this, not quite sure how to take it, but when I heard this song, it reminded me of how difficult it is to be a human being how much suffering human beings go through, and how much suffering especially men go through. This is a male perspective, and and if you're curious about where the song came from, it's on the new album from Tom Jones called uh, Praise and Blame. And this is his very first gospel album. He's 70 years old now, still looks really good, and still sings really good. But I think he's thinking about dying. Because the whole album is about life and death and redemption and salvation. And at some point in our journey through this lifetime, we get to that place where, where life and death become important issues. And, and, and how do we deal with that? And, and how do we wake up to the reality of life and death? So this song is a, is a Christian perspective about dealing with suffering. And, and then I'll talk about how Buddhists might deal with suffering in a little different way. So if you feel uncomfortable listening to a Christian gospel country song, I'm sorry, but I think it's got some merit.
0: Down a dangerous road I have come to where I'm standing With a heavy heart And my hat clutched in my hand such a foolish fool, God ain't no, no greater sinner, I've come in search of Jesus, hoping he will understand, had a woman once, she was kind, she was gentle, had a child by me, a job till I started into drinking, and I started making music, traveling with the If I give my soul, will my son love me again? If I give my soul, and she knows I really mean it. If I give my soul to Jesus, will she take me back again? If I give my soul, will he cleanse these clothes? I'm if I give my soul, will he put new boots on my feet, if I bow my head, and as God for his forgiveness, will he breathe in breath inside me, help me smile again, will he breathe in breath inside me, help me smile again.
1: Now, if that doesn't bum me out, I don't know what
0: does.
1: <laughs> but this is a guy, you know, who lost his wife, he lost his family, he drank too much, he played his music, and probably needs a new pair of boots to go along with all that stuff. And, and, and so he's trying to create a relationship. And, and what Buddha said is that that relationship is already in place. We just have to wake up to the fact that we are interconnected and interdependent to all things all the time. I, I went to a Christmas party, which was oh, loud and sort of obnoxious, and um, but everybody was having a joyful holiday time. And this one woman asked me, she says, don't you ever get lonely not having a wife and children and, and car payments and mortgages? Mm-hmm. I mean, don't you just... Don't you ever get lonely? And, and you know, to be honest with you, I don't. There's a certain sense of aloneness that happens in this practice that I think is healthy. And it allows us to, to see where our reality comes from. It comes from us. And, and if you're connected to a lot of people all the time in a codependent fashion, your reality may come from them which may or may not be a good thing. So how do we come to this place of being, of realizing our interconnection and our interdependence? And how does it feel? What are some of the characteristics of waking up? Let me just read this little uh, bit about this book. Now, this is overly dramatic because they're trying to sell this book, uh, but this is what Amazon.com says about this book, publisher stuff. How much of your waking time are you fully awake? On the other hand, how often do you stumble through the day on autopilot, half-asleep and out of contact with yourself, instead instead of feeling connected and alive? In this book, Steve Taylor suggests that our normal consciousness is really a kind of sleep from which sometimes we wake up into a more intense and complete reality. He provides what is perhaps the first ever clear explanation of higher states of consciousness or awakening experiences. This work delves into the methods we as human beings have used throughout history to induce awakening experiences including meditation, sex, sports, psychedelic drugs and sleep deprivation how higher states of consciousness were normal and natural to some of the world's peoples, and still are in some cases, and how we can make wakefulness our normal state again. By fully explaining awakening experiences, the author makes them much more accessible, which may lead to a revolution in our psychological development as human beings. Awfully 995. Now, one of, the person who, one of the persons who read this book uh, left this on, on the Amazon.com and says, I love this book. It was very readable while expressing some deep spiritual and psychological truths. Steve Taylor has a great gift for making profound, potentially difficult concepts very accessible. It's not a book of spiritual teachings as such, but a book that tries to understand temporary spiritual experiences how they occur, and if it's possible to make them permanent. It's rare rare to find a person of such obvious spiritual awareness combined with a very acute intellect. A very important book. Enough said about the book. But he goes into a variety of experiences, and some are just mini-awakenings, and some are more rather dramatic awakenings. And I'd just like to share a couple of those with you. And, um, and I'm paraphrasing because I'm reading the book and I'm just using my memory. And I'm also going to throw a couple of my own awakening experiences in there that have, but I'm not going to tell you which ones they are because I'm not really supposed to talk about my own experiences. So they're going to be just sort of messed in with all the other ones. <laughs> so he talks about outward uh, experiences. And He talks about, for me, uh, something I've heard before is walking on the beach and it's, the sun is starting to set and, and all of a sudden you, you really feel connected to this beach and the ocean and the sun and the sky. And you start to see that you're no longer separate, you are, you are part of that. And some people may call that wholeness, uh, I call it interconnectedness. Um, and, and what happens it seems in, the, in, the, in these experiences is there's a certain calm and peacefulness that arises, but there's a certain joy and happiness that arises too. And I think the reason the joy and happiness arises is because we no longer feel separate from the world around us, that in this this, this moment we find ourselves connected and reconnected in sort of a non-ego way, it's a transcendent experience, a transcendence of the ego. And it can happen and we might we call it an epiphany and we notice it and then we we'll are write back into where did I park my car and I wonder how much traffic going to be and how long it will take me to get home. So we have that. He also talked about little deeper experiences and little deeper experiences can happen when we have a, a meditation practice, an inward practice. And rather than waiting for the universe or the world to sort of move us into this place of transcendence, we can do it ourselves. And some of the examples he used uh, were rather interesting, I thought. there's one fellow uh, he interviewed uh, was sitting in meditation. He went to a Buddhist meditation center and was sitting in meditation. And and what he became aware of in his meditation practice was uh, a thousand burning lotus flowers. As far as he could see, with his inner eye, his eyes were closed and he had gone into this this place of quiet and peace, that they had these burning lotus flowers as far as he could see. And afterwards, when the gong rang and and everybody sort of came to their consciousness again, uh, there was this peace that followed him for a couple of days. He had had gone someplace inside, not outside, but inside, that he hadn't realized existed in the way it did. And, And that allowed him to see that perhaps the refuge he was seeking is not outside, but inside. Another example is sort of a paranormal example of walking down the street, and there was a moment when this fellow heard every conversation on the block at exactly the same time, but was able to understand each one. Now, uh, that would just freak you out, wouldn't it, just be walking down the street minding your own business, and all of a sudden everybody was having a conversation on the block. It became your conversation in your head, and you could hear it distinctly. And, and I think perhaps one of the reasons that occurred is because, again, this was ego transcendence. This was allowing that, that thing that separates us from the world around us to, to fall away for just a moment. And we came in direct contact with the world without that barrier. Uh, one of the most dramatic examples in the book was a fellow who was meditating and... Um, counting his breath, minding his own business and all of a sudden at the base of his spine there was a warmth and this warmth slowly creeped up his back and came to his shoulders and blasted his consciousness away and he was enveloped in this, in this bright light, a supernova kind of light and, and the only sound that was heard was this sort of rumbling train like sound as if it was a, a, a vibratory nature and then just as quickly as the supernova appeared, it disappeared. And, and again, it, there was this sense of peace and harmony and connection that lasted for a few days afterwards. And the Hindus talk a lot about this. This is the, this is the serpent energy, the kundalini rising. And apparently once that happens in your meditation practice, it allows you to go into different places. and uh, So these are all interesting awakening experiences, but I'm sure all of us at some point in our life have, have had one, and maybe we've just discounted it as being tired, or not paying attention, or the hangover that we're trying to deal with, and, and, and it didn't have much meaning. But, but how would a Buddhist who's practicing meditation go in to these awakening experiences. What techniques would they use? And and thankfully in Buddhism we have two different forms of meditation. We have insight meditation and we have tranquility meditation. And the tranquility meditation has evolved to the point that allows us to have these awakening experiences. I like to call them enlightenment experiences. Uh, they don't last forever, and that was the downside that the Buddha realized in practicing this form of meditation, that you could reach a temporary place of interconnection and interdependence. You could have an enlightenment experience, uh, but, but as soon as you got off the cushion and went out the door, that experience ended. And, and he searched for a permanent experience of enlightenment, which is called nirvana, I call it nirvana, and he found that through insight meditation. So I'm not going to talk about insight meditation today. That's the permanent enlightenment. I'm going to talk about tranquility meditation today. And that's the temporary enlightenment that we can all experience in our everyday practice. It's it's called jhanas, jhana meditation, J-H-A-N-A. And in the traditional approach to jhanas, there are four levels of tranquility four levels of peace, four levels of equanimity and balance. And and the first jhana has five characteristics. So imagine yourself sitting on the floor cross-legged, counting your breath, becoming aware of the sensation of breath, exiting and entering and exiting and entering. As the ego starts to become anesthetized, and then the idea is not to kill the ego, the idea is not to get rid of the ego, the the idea is just to put the ego to sleep for a little while. Because the ego is the very thing that prevents us from our reconnection to the world around us. Now, if we had to choose ego or no ego, I think we would all choose ego, because it's uh, it, it has allowed us to read and write and do mathematics and build bridges to cross streams and build cars to get around the city. The ego has allowed us to do a whole lot of things. But the one thing the ego doesn't allow us to do is be free. <laughs> and most of us are willing to put up with the prison of ego because it, it really pays off in a lot of ways. But if you have a, a spiritual bent and you're just a little curious about what it means to be free, I mean really free, uh, transcending ego is one way to experience that. So we, we, we sit down, we cross our legs, we come to that sensation of breath, we start to count, we have a one-pointedness of attention. Now this one-pointedness of attention ultimately creates a separation from the duality of the ego. Because the duality of the ego, the ego needs to think in dualistic terms. It needs to be self and other. It can't work any other way. And, and this one-pointedness of, of breath meditation Allows us to sort of sidestep that duality and come to this place of oneness. The oneness of simple sensation, going out and coming in, going out and coming in. So the first five characteristics of the jhana, or the f- first jhana, five characteristics are applied thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, and equanimity. And what that means in real terms is this we sit down, we apply our thought to the sensation of breath. And we hold it there, applied thought, sustained thought. In holding your attention on the sensation of breath, there's a sense of happiness that arises, mental happiness, a sense of bliss and pleasure that arises, physical, and a sense of peace or balance that arises. So these are the five characteristics of the first jhana. We continue to watch that breath. We continue to focus on that breath. We continue to be that breath. Without duality, without past and future, without self and other. And if we're successful in holding our attention on the object of meditation, we go into the second level of tranquility, the second level of peace. Now, instead of five characteristics, there are three characteristics. We have a greater sense of happiness in the mind, a greater sense of bliss and pleasure in the body, and a greater sense of peace and balance overall. And there we are and we're working hard, and the reason we don't have applied thought and sustained thought is because we have trained our attention to simply rest on the object of meditation. It's not a willfulness. There's no willfulness uh, necessary to hold it there. It simply rests on the object of meditation. There's a greater sense of happiness and a greater sense of bliss. And in, in the book, the author seems to think that there is this energy in the universe, and, and it's... Uh, I think that in quantum physics they call it uh, uh, negative point energy. I think that's the term that's used in the book. I haven't memorized the book yet. And, and what that means is that there is, there is a backdrop of energy that's everywhere. And, and, and we see the energy in form and formlessness. We can hear the energy and smell the energy and taste the energy and touch the energy. But we don't we don't touch the raw energy, we, we touch the energy that has been manifested already that we've manifested in the world around us, but there is a, there is this energy and, and he thinks this energy is bliss and when we come in contact with this raw energy of the universe a sense of bliss and happiness arises in us. I like that idea and, and perhaps that is uh, true and perhaps in our own personal meditation practice we can experience that energy ourselves so now we have a greater sense of bliss we have a greater sense of physical pleasure and we have a greater sense of balance and peace we want to go further in our practice and in order to go further in our practice we need to give something up because Buddhism is a path of renunciation Buddhism is a path of letting go not accumulation so in our letting go we have decided now to let go of happiness mental happiness and in letting go of mental happiness what we What we understand is this, that that happiness, even though it's a pleasant experience, agitates our mind. That you can't find true peace in happiness. Most people aren't seeking peace, though. Most people are seeking happiness, (laughs) and so they're willing to give up the idea of peace. I mean, have you ever seen anybody peaceful at Disneyland? People go to Disneyland to be happy, not to be peaceful. But you come to the meditation center, and you do a half hour meditation, and you look at everybody's face, and there isn't a happy face in the crowd, <laughs> but, the, but there are a lot of peaceful faces looking back at you, with this sort of relaxed face muscles, muscles and uh, not much to say, not much to do. So the, this kind of peace brings with it a certain balance that we lack because of our relationship with the world through ego. If we understand that, that peace is, a, is something that agitates the stillness of the mind and of course the opposite of uh, pardon me, uh, happiness and the opposite of happiness is unhappiness, when giving up happiness we can also give up unhappiness. You go, okay, cool. Now, I can't tell you how to give up your happiness and it's really not about literally giving up your happiness, it's about giving up your attachment to happiness. A lot of people are attached to happiness. A lot of people are attached to mandatory happiness. That little Christmas party I went to was created because people wanted to be happy. And there was a sense of mandatory happiness. That if you weren't happy and you were there, you weren't really giving the party a chance to work its magic on you. I left a little early because I wasn't happy. (laughs) (laughs) Now we come to pleasure. Pleasure is a real tough one because physically, pleasure is wonderful. You know, it's about the only thing that our body does for us that that really seems worthwhile. And on the other side of pleasure, of course, is pain and and, and, and all the uh, uncomfortable aspects of having a human body. Aging can be really uncomfortable. Right now, I'm taking care of uh, an aging dog. His name is Mitch, and Mitch lives in my room. Mm -hmm and and he's about 15 now and he's 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 like on his last legs literally and i live on the second floor of our meditation center and so mitch lives in my room he was an outdoor dog for many years and then he kept getting cold and lonely and so i brought him into the house the meditation center and nobody who lived in the house but me wanted him in the hallway and they had to step over him, and he had his little water bowl there. And it was just really inconvenient to have a dog in the hallway. So I didn't say anything. I just said, okay, Mitch, you can't be in the hallway, but you can come in my room. So Mitch has been in my room for now two years. Been my roommate. I had a cat as well. So we had Mitch and we had Fernelli the cat, and it was me. It's not a very big room, but we were all good roommates together. And then Fernelli died a couple months ago, which was a sad passing. And now Mitch is it and and he's so old now he can't go up and down the stairs so in the morning when it's time to take mitch out i get mitch in the hallway and i say okay mitch and i pick him up he's about 70 pounds and I walk him down the stairs walk him outside then it's time to come in and i get mitch and i bring him up the stairs and to be honest with you, i feel like i'm getting in pretty good shape with mitch you know and Mitch sometimes will turn his little head and he'll look my arm because he realizes I'm his caregiver and I'm taking him downstairs. And sometimes he'll be really happy when I'm feeding him good food and not so happy when I'm feeding him regular food. And, and it's, it's wonderful to see uh, him still as active as he can be, but it's also sad to see him go through all the pain and suffering because of his body. His legs don't work quite right. He's a half German shepherd and... Uh, and sometimes he doesn't eat very well, and sometimes he throws up, and sometimes he can't see very well because of the cataracts, and most of the time he can't hear very well because he's going deaf, but his nose works really good, and he can smell everything. And, and to see all that pain and discomfort coming from the body, and then to look at old human beings too. When you go shopping or like the grocery store, and there's this old guy in front of you, which happened to me just the other day as so I'm buying cat and dog food for the animals I take care of. And he had the the white cane with the little red tip, and he couldn't see very well, he couldn't hear very well. And, and, and all of a sudden, I saw Mitch in this guy. The dog I take care of, I saw him. And so I went over and asked if I could help him. I took some stuff out of his thing, and he, he got some change, and he, and he didn't know what to do. And, so, and it was just, and then I looked in the mirror, and I saw him myself one day getting old. Hopefully, people will help me in the, in the food line. You know. To get me out or carry me downstairs so I can go pee in the grass and then bring me back upstairs, you know. <laughs> Hopefully that'll happen one day. But this body of ours has so much pain involved with the pleasure of having the body, and and if we can have an equanimity and not be attached to the pleasure that the body gives us, maybe we can find a way not to be attached or averse to the pain the body gives us as well because it's just a matter of time and when we figure that out then we come to this place of balance, this place of equanimity this place of profound acceptance of the way things are now most people will, will rally against accepting things the way they are and they'll even throw a negative aspect to it, they say well why don't you want to make the world better, are you just going to accept the world the way it is? you know? and of course the idea is to accept the way the world is and then help people suffer less. So can we stop the hurricanes? Not yet, you know. but maybe with Katrina we could have gotten the water to New Orleans a little sooner. So that wouldn't have been changing the world, that would have been reducing suffering. And people have enough uh, to eat around the world. No they don't. But that's just so sort of the way the world is. I don't think people have ever had enough to eat in the total population of the world. I think some people have a lot to eat and, and some people don't have quite as much to eat. There's something in Buddhism called the hotai, which is, looks like a little fat Buddha. He's got a really big belly. Comes from China. And he, sometimes you see him in these uh, Chinese restaurants and people want to rub his belly for good luck and rub his head for good luck. And the idea of the big belly is that he had enough to eat. And so people who don't have enough to eat aspire to look like him one day. So many of them are moving to America because they see most Americans look like this hotel. (laughs) So it's working out fine. (laughs) So not having enough to eat is just sort of the way the world works, but being Buddhist and being connected to all the living creatures and non-living creatures on the earth, perhaps our job is to reduce suffering and to try to feed the ones that don't have enough to eat. and to to quench the thirst of those who don't have enough to drink. Not because the world is bad, but simply because there's too much suffering in the world. So can we accept the world the way it really is and reduce suffering as well? Absolutely. Does it help to have a balanced mind? Absolutely. Does it help to get past happiness and sadness? Absolutely. You can be much more effective at reducing suffering if you're not attached to happiness or have aversion to sadness or not attached to pleasure and have an aversion to pain if you've ever been to a hospital or worked in a hospital or been a chaplain in a hospital there was so much suffering in those hospitals suffering because people are hoping for a change people don't want it to be the way it is people don't want their body to be the way it is don't want their mind to be the way it is and is searching for an answer, a solution to their suffering, to their pain, to their confusion. and Perhaps as a Buddhist when we enter the hospital our job would be to find the balance in the situation. The Buddha warned us that sickness and old age and death were part of the human condition. They were there because of birth and because we were all born We're going to have to get sick and old and die one day. And I just love this idea of national health care myself. And I just really find it fascinating that so many people are against mandatory health care. And I'm thinking to myself, well, gosh, if they had ever listened to the Buddha, the Buddha would have warned them that no one has ever lived on this earth and not been sick. (laughs) It will happen, guaranteed. And wouldn't it be nice not to have to die from your sickness? Wouldn't it be nice to maybe get well, <laughs> have some health care? Uh, this is not a political statement, this is a human statement. And so as, as I'm looking at this, I see this great sense of separation from the reality of life. That life is filled with a bunch of unsatisfactoriness. Because we expect it to be different than it is, because we misinterpret and don't experience the world in a correct, wholesome, healthy way. And so as a Buddhist, perhaps our job is to wake up and become a little bit enlightened to the fact that, that it simply is the way it is. And then our job is to reduce our suffering and the suffering of others. And the Buddha said, this is how you reduce suffering. Now, last week, I was at a Catholic high school. For two days, I gave four presentations. Um, they're all seniors, all girls. Uh, they had all been cooking and brought Christmas cookies to class. You know, it's really, a, everybody eats at Catholic school. I don't know. I'm not quite sure why. But they ate a lot, and it was fun to talk to them. And, and, and they were talking about suffering. and they were, And they couldn't just couldn't handle the fact that there wasn't any good in the world, from my perspective. And, and I said, well, well, we have good, but we have good in the way we think, in the way we speak, in the way we act. But the world itself is neutral, I said to them. I said, the world doesn't care if we're here or not. And some scientists believe if we finally end up not being here, the world would be a much better place to live in. The grass will come back and the sky will be clear and the rain will be pure. And, um, and so as, as I look at that, I'm thinking to myself, how do I come to a place of acceptance with that? This world being not cruel, but indifferent to my existence here. I mean, it doesn't care if I'm here or not here. I mean, if I go into the forest uh, expecting Mother Nature to take care of me, I'm probably in for a big surprise. Because those, those spiders, and those snakes, and that poison ivy, and those big cliffs with thousand foot drops, they don't care if I'm here or not.
0: I'm going, whoa.
1: So how do I find the happiness? How do I find the bliss? How do I get to that place of, of a caring for myself and others? And it seems to come through the waking experience, the experience of the transcendence of ego, that reconnection to the world around us, and that bliss if you want to call it bliss or that energy if you want to call it energy or if you have a christian side to you that god that might be there or godhead if you're hindu whatever your background is there's something out there that we have a chance to reconnect to if we're able to just anesthetize or put ego to sleep just for a little while and in our meditation practice we can come to a place of, of one-pointedness which allows us to be transcendent. It allows us to transcend past and future. It allows us to transcend our physical body. And when I say that, I want to be careful because we, we don't have an out-of-body experience, but we, what we do have is a loss of the map of the body that our ego, our personality, has decided where our body ends and the world begins, which allows me to pick up a water bottle without looking or play the ukulele without looking at the chords because I've memorized that, so I know where my fingers are even when I don't see my fingers and in meditation we can lose that map and come to a place of reconnection with the world around us so it's not an out-of-body experience, but it's, it's a transcendent body experience and how would that feel to not have your body for just a few minutes? You know, especially if your knees hurt and your back hurts. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice just sort of leave it behind for a few minutes and then come back? And, and so as I thought about waking up, it's, it's, not, it's not as hard as you might think it is. And what it allows you to do is wake up to the fact that you are and always will be interconnected and interdependent. And you'll never have to sing that country gospel song about creating a relationship because you're always in relationship with everything all the time. And there's never a reason you should be lonely. But cherish those moments of aloneness as a way of rejuvenating self so you can be better with other. Yeah. I'm going to stop there. And ask if anybody has comments or questions about what I've said.
0: Um, well, it's to that. I've been thinking about um, non attachment versus apathy. Okay. I'm a high school teacher, and um so I've noticed it with my kids. Like, after meditation, I feel so peaceful, and I'm wondering do I need to worry about more about them? Yes. Especially if it's just we just had finals
1: it's all stressed out <laughs> and I'm trying to help them but I said, just, you know, just being a teacher just do your best and will yeah. come to you and, and, and I'm just "Well, why aren't you worried about this And you know, so anyway just so they thought I was being apathetic where I was just not catching you and fucking yeah uh, what we don't want to be is indifferent or have apathy absolutely and and that's and that's the um, that's the poison um, in, in the statement of, it's best to be non-attached. Okay, and So we, we have to say, what is non-attachment? It seems to me non-attachment is this, that we go through the world with our palm open, and people give us stuff, and we don't close our palm, make a fist, and people take stuff, and we don't close our palm and make a fist. We keep it open all the time, so there's a flow that happens. The idea in non-attachment is not to be indifferent to the feelings as well. The idea in non-attachment is to feel everything 100%. But realize that everything you're feeling will soon be gone. And when it goes, it'll be replaced by other feelings. And, And the idea is not to hold on to the good feelings, or not to push away the bad feelings, but experience them completely with balance and equanimity. And, and realize that everything is in a constant state of flux and change. So, worry about the students, the day's over, time to get a cup of coffee, worry about yourself, car needs a new tire, blah, blah, blah. And everything you do, you're, you're totally engaged in and with and, and not thinking back to what has been done that can't be changed or what should be done tomorrow because that will make itself obvious or evident to you but what am I doing now? And how can I stay connected to it now? And how can I feel everything? But also let those feelings go when it's appropriate, when it's time to let them go. And, and uh, a good example for me is divorce. Geez, talk about holding on. For years, you see people who are bitter and, and despondent for years after divorce. And they just can't let go, you know? And, and that's a dramatic example of attachment. Uh, but in our everyday, you know, we have a great meal. Uh, we have a, a wonderful cup of coffee, we have some conversations with friends. And we just wish it would go on a lot longer than it can. But it can't because of things to do and places to go and people to see. And So when it's time to separate yourself from the conversation and the coffee, a Buddhist would say, of course, this is, this is the end which allows the next beginning to occur. We, you know, I, I find the older I get, the less um, memory I have, which is sort of interesting. So people come up to me and say, do you remember me? I had, it just happened uh, a couple days ago. And this guy came to our center 10 years ago. And he says, do you remember me? I says, well, when were you here? He says, I was here in 2000. He said, gosh, that was a long time. I don't remember. You don't remember? I says, no, but it's <laughs> good to see you again.
0: That line is you. That me ten years ago, You don't remember? Yeah.
1: And, and, it's, and it's funny that, you know, and, and am I worried about that? Not at all. It gives me much more space in my head for new stuff to come in instead of carrying all the old memories and all that. And when somebody comes into my life again, it's the first time, you know, I don't need to carry all the stuff I remember them doing or or not doing. I can look at them with fresh eyes and say good to see you and create a brand new relationship with that brand new person who's much different than they were 10 years ago as well as me. So this idea of, of holding on cherished thoughts and possessions, if we can open that hand and let the stuff flow, we can be in the present moment experience of our life. And be totally engaged, and sensitive, and feel every moment, and realize that's the human aspect of our experience. And also realize that the Buddha said all things are impermanent. And if you attach or have aversion to anything, you will feel uncomfortable, and you will suffer, and you will be unhappy. So in leaving, somebody goes to the to the bus stop, and you're going to say goodbye to them, not see them for a couple years, and you cry. Oh, yeah. and nothing wrong with crying. Crying is really good. But the idea is to is to cry and then go get a cup of coffee. <laughs> go to the next thing, okay. And when they come back, you can cry again, and then get another cup of coffee. So so that non-attachment, I think, is it can be pretty tricky. So we don't want to push stuff away. We don't want to hold on to stuff. We want to experience everything completely, and we always understand that everything's changing that makes sense of it? Yeah. Okay. And I really like that we you said that this is ending something out of the beginning. Yes. Yeah.
0: Like that. that. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that cool to have a new beginning? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So. Yeah. Please. It's just words but I keep hearing um, that the answer or the truth is not out there, it's within. Yeah. And, and at the same time. There is no self. It's not you not know, defined by our skin. You know, just it's words I know. How do
1: you reconcile those two things? Yeah, it sounds paradoxical. That's for sure, doesn't it? Uh, so um, I look at it this way: uh, it's humans are like we're all wearing our spacesuits, okay? And we're in this world, this planet. We have got our spacesuits on. And in our spacesuits, we have little eye openings for our eyeballs, a little nose opening for our nose, and a little mouth opening for our mouth. And, and, and there's certain parts of our spacesuit allow us to feel, touch. And then we have the mind that's, that's taking all this information through the sense doors and creating a story. And that's the ego, the self. So in, in one way, uh, we create the world moment by moment through sense, door, information, and ego. Uh, and and is there anything really out there? Well, there is, but it's not the way we interpret it. It's not the way we experience it. There is form, and there is sound, and there is sensation, and there is smell, and there is taste. Uh, but those are pretty basic, general concepts. And the ego's job is to fill in the spaces and make it specific. So we have uh, tacos with hot sauce, cold beer, and salsa, making it specific. Otherwise, it's just a smell or a taste. Non specific. If we can anesthetize the ego, the storyteller, we can come to a direct experience of those sense doors. And I live down the street, I live just off of Olympic in Vermont. That's where our meditation center is. And in, in meditating here as well, I'm sure we've all heard helicopters flying above. And, and so you're sitting in meditation, the helicopter flies above, and now you have this image arise of a helicopter, and you imagine it might be a police helicopter. And this police helicopter might be chasing a car, and they might be robbers who just robbed a store. And so we keep creating the story, right? We start with the sound, our eardrum vibrating, and all of a sudden we're in the midst of this drama, just like watching TV. Is it really real? Well, it's, it's the way we're experiencing that sound. The way we're experiencing that sound. If we can anesthetize the storyteller and come to the direct experience of the world around us, it's, it's not a very scary or happy place. It's just sound, and sight, and smell, and taste, and touch, and a bunch of thinking tying all those sense doors together, creating the story of our life. In one respect, I think what the Buddha is saying to us, he's saying, the world does not contain any suffering at all, none whatsoever. The problem is we experience the world in an unrealistic way and it's in our experience of the world that suffering arises. And going out to change the world to get rid of your suffering is a big waste of time, perhaps. Perhaps it would be more effective to change the way you experience the world. And can we do that? We can experience the world differently because of our meditation practice. We can experience the world with what much more wisdom and compassion through our meditation practice. Therefore, reducing our suffering, the way we experience the world, and the suffering that world seems to create in us. It took me a while to figure that out because I imagined that there was literally suffering in the world. And, and I said to myself, what color is the suffering in the world? Well, I couldn't come up with a satisfactory color for suffering. <laughs> well, how does suffering sound? I said to myself. Well, I've heard the effects of suffering. I've heard the wails and cries of people suffering. But I haven't heard the suffering itself. And how does suffering smell and taste? And what does it feel like? You know? And, and as I started to put a check mark by each one of those, saying, well, I can't find the color of suffering, or the sound of suffering, or the smell of suffering, or the taste of suffering, or the touch of suffering in the world. But I can see that my experience of the world creates this internally. It's not external suffering, it's internal suffering. And, and, and the Buddha, as I understand it, um, his whole philosophy arose because of his experience of the world. It's an empirical perspective. It's not a scientific self and other measurements were not taken. He said to himself, How do I experience the world? And in my experience of the world, do I suffer? And if that's the case, how can I end my suffering? And if I have to end my suffering, then I must end my suffering by experience the world in a different way. So we have this thing called nirvana. And nirvana, or those little enlightenment experiences that we have allow us to perceive the world in a really unique way. It's almost like there's a brick wall and all of a sudden all the border falls out and now you can see between the cracks and the bricks and on the other side is the reality. The the, the reality before it comes to the ego and is processed and made into a story. And so in looking through the cracks of the bricks we get a glimpse of that reality. And we don't see suffering. We don't necessarily see happiness either, or pleasure, or pain, but we do see peace. And that peace is sort of that thing that comes from accepting that reality simply the way it is, without fighting against it, or needing to change it. So, so I've come to understand that that ego allows me to have a really interesting story, and share that story with anyone who will listen one of the joys of conversation. Um, um, and you take that away and there's nothing to say. It's only something to experience. And in that experience, which oftentimes can't be translated into language of any kind, uh, we acquire wisdom and compassion. Wisdom because we've experienced the true nature of reality, and compassion because of the suffering the untrue reality creates for others. And so our job is to wake them up, bring them around, show them the reality of their life. And of course, you never can do that. You can't ever tell anybody to wake up and smell the coffee. (laughs) And so I have found simply uh, not responding in the way the most people respond is gives everybody else an option. If three people in the room are yelling and one person is silent, then there's an option. We don't all have to yell. If three people in the room are suffering and one isn't, then there's an option. And so the meditator can do the option without saying a word of how to experience the world in a way that doesn't lead to suffering.
0: Is that, is that helpful? I like that, but I'm still a little bit stuck like the meditator, the controller of the experience where there's a in and out and more experience that there isn't an in and out and that you're trying to get out of
1: your way just to be you know. yeah absolutely and, and you heard some of that today as I played my ukulele so after a year or so of practice daily practice of having ego present telling what finger to touch what string there are moments that that practice turns into performance where the music simply flows through you if you get out of the way. And there are moments in our life when life flows through us if we get out of the way. Sometimes we need to be present, granted. The police pull us over, they're going to give us a ticket. Who are you? You say, I'm oh, nobody. And they say, okay, problem's going to rise, right? So, the idea, so sometimes we have to be somebody and, and, and act like somebody. But that's the ego nature of human existence. And then there are times when we transcend that and simply perform. Simply allow the music to come out or allow the experience to arise without getting in the way of the experience with preferences or the way things should be. One of the reasons I like to go to museums and art galleries alone is because people like to tell me what I'm looking at. And that ruins my experience. Sometimes it's better for me, just to experience it completely with total ignorance, and, and, and get a feeling for it. Because if I, if I know too much about something, I can't see it anymore. I only see what I know then. If, if I go on vacation, I, I rarely figure out where I'm going to go. I just go there and then let it happen. A lot of fun. I did a, um, a 5,000 mile motorcycle trip one of the most grueling things I've done. But I didn't know where I was going to stop at night. I didn't know where I was going to eat during the day. I didn't know what I wanted to see or what I didn't want to see. The only thing I knew was I wanted to stay alive for those 5,000 miles. So there was that sense of uh, alertness that goes along with the, with the motorcycle trip and, and that sense of caution, but also that sense of wonderment. I can remember being in New Mexico on this beautiful asphalt highway as far as you can see. And there's a train that must have 100, 200 cars being pulled and, and it just rained and you could smell the sage. And it just all came together in this sort of symphony of sensations. And and how can you possibly put that into words even though I just tried? It's just that, <laughs> it's, just that it's that direct experience, you see. So So we can actually have a direct experience and, and not need to be there completely, 100%. So ego is necessary for us to exist in this very complicated world, but there are, there are opportunities for us to just get past it for a while, to see what it's really like. Um, so in meditation, if I'm singing well, I realize ego's not there. If I'm practicing well, I realize ego's uh, present and accounted for it so it's weird, performance or practice what is my life? my life is mostly practice I'm practicing to have a life but sometimes it turns into performance and it's joyful when that happens I wish it would happen more often but I'm still practicing so it will happen one day completely, all the time when there will just be performance and no practice necessary and I suppose we could call that nirvana better that time? Make, make more sense. Okay, it, it, it's just sort of hard stuff to talk about. But it's, but it's important stuff. Because most of us here today are, are here because um, we, we know there's more to life than news, weather, and sports. There's just got to be. And, and, and we, there are certain people in the world who have discovered how to get there. And the Buddha is one of them. So, yeah. And son of a gun time all relative but it just flew by so what i'd like to do to end our our day together is to just do a loving kindness meditation uh, it's filled with wisdom and compassion and may we take that out into the world and, and, and share a little bit of that with all those people who are still suffering from holiday and travel and no money and no gifts yes be happy peaceful and free from suffering. May no harm come to us, may no difficulties come to us, may no problems come to us. May we always find fulfillment, may we also have patience, courage, understanding and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems and failures in life. May our parents, our partners, our pets, our brothers and sisters, our friends and family, all the people we don't know, all the people we don't like, may they too be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to them. May no difficulties come to them. May no problems come to them. May they always find fulfillment. May they also have patience, courage, understanding and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems and failures in life. May the suffering ones be suffering free, the fear struck fearless be, may the grieving shed all grief, may the sick find health relief.
0: well and um, also all of our classes are like donation based only we never turn anyone away for lack of funds that being said we do want to support our teachers and we need to pay the bills and we request um, a 15 dollar donation if you have it if you have more great we'd love it if you don't have that whatever you can afford is is great too and if you don't have anything at all you're always welcome thank you Thanks. Thank you